Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 96. Bupler's 21 and 25 brigades were manoeuvring around the western edge of the 1,370-meter-high Biposhto high ground, which lay south of the Hubei and Chambinga rivers. That was before dawn on the 16th of November 1987. Those rivers flowed in almost directly east to west. That meant the Angolan brigades were now squeezed between the high ground and the river, heading towards the Hubei's source. Their plan was to circle around the east side of the source, then head back westerly along the right bank of the river, eventually reaching the strategic Chambinga River Bridge, and then digging in to fight against the South Africans. At 0600, the 21 and 25 brigades were refueling before the next push for the headwaters of the Hubei, with Russian advisor, team leader, Lieutenant Colonel Anatoly Artyomenko standing on top of his troop carrier. The SADF's Alpha, Bravo and Charlie combat groups were thundering north, trying to cut them off on the east side, the right of the Vaposhta high ground. During the night of the 15th, SADF recce's and spotters were on the move ahead of the advancing battle groups, and despite the Angolans' determination to coordinate their next moves, the next few hours were going to be grim. Battle group Charlie wasn't hard to spot. Vapla reconnaissance teams heard them miles away because Commander Leon Marais had decided to breach a large minefield using the Plofada explosives. Fired from rockets, they landed on the minefield in a long strand, detonating loudly and also detonating mines. They didn't always work, and this time they worked well enough to signal Charlie's presence to advancing Vapla brigades. Because both sides had driven into the same area at night, the South Africans had further compounded their own lack of quiet by firing mortar shell illumination flares before dawn. This gave their positions away in both cases long before Fapla actually spotted the forward rattles and buffles. The South Africans were also travelling very slowly as the commanders fretted about the exact location of minefields, despite having maps they'd seized in the attacks on the 16th Brigade two weeks earlier. The minefield had been laid between the Chambinga and Hubei River sources, precisely where an advancing army would try and attack. Three two-battalion troops were on foot between a squadron of Rattle 90s. Ahead of them marched a company of four Sai infantry, and the Olifant tanks were to their right. On the left, a Unita infantry battalion spread out closer to the high ground. The South African artillery fired, and moments later, one of their mortars landed ten metres away from Artyomenko, who was standing on the APC, the blast knocking him off. The artillery advisor, fifty metres away, jumped out of his APC and ran to help, expecting the worst, but... Mikhailovich had somehow escaped injury, along with all the other Russian advisers. This first shell heralded the start of a bombardment, which the Russians said later, the like of which, in truth, we as yet never experienced. They were all veterans of the terrible war in Afghanistan, but this level of carnage was far worse than anything they experienced before. It was reminiscent of what the ancestors had felt fighting the Germans on the Eastern Front, rather than an African non-conventional war. The shells were exploding in salvos, and confusion spread quickly. It's hard to think when all your senses are being assailed by such power, and one Russian wrote that they were seeking shelter, but the South Africans beat them black and blue. Most were now inside their carriers, which were being rocked back and forth by the near misses, and they began to move forward in terror. The South Africans bombarded a very large area because it took us around 40 minutes to escape the zone of fire wrote Igor Zhidokin in his diary later that night. He had helped bandage one of the Fapla guards protecting the Russian advisers who had been hit by shrapnel in the leg. 
Less than half the brigade column had emerged from this bombardment. The rest preferred to shelter or were dead and were being led by an Angolan brigade logistics officer. His face was contorted and he was terrified and confused, said Shadokin. He stuttered badly. The wheels, bodies and inner compartments of the vehicles had numerous gaping holes left by shell fragments. At that moment, 21 Brigade Commander Captain Nguleka arrived and restored some sense of order, setting up an assembly point and shouting instructions. The Angolans managed to reassemble the column and headed towards the source of the Hubei River. Nguleka was highly respected by his men as well as the Russians, who came to regard him as innovative, quick-thinking and courageous. He was one of the truly worthy adversaries the South Africans were to face in this war. As Fapla's brigades approached the Hubei River's source at 10am, more heavy fighting erupted, and in the first Fapla salvo, three SADF men were killed and two vehicles destroyed. These were members of Forsai and national servicemen, and some had only a few days left before they were to clatter out of the army after their two-year stint. 3-2 Battalion was also taking hits. Fapla's Stalin organ and multiple rocket launchers were sowing their own havoc, hitting the trees and skidding along the ground alongside the rapidly moving troops. It was unnerving for both sides. The men were ordered behind the Ulifan tanks. Then a Fapla mortar hit a tree beside a group of these troops, injuring one of the three two soldiers as shrapnel hummed through the air. He collapsed with blood streaming from his face. De Villiers' force was hit in the shoulder by shrapnel, but refused to be Kazavacked, preferring to be put in a rattle from where he watched the rest of the battle. 21 Brigade Commander Captain Nguleke had also been hit while driving in his BTR-60 armoured personnel carrier, and, like de Villiers' force, he refused to be Kazavacked and continued fighting. The Angolans had surprised the SADF by proving they were capable of resolute and rapid movement, although it was in tactical retreat rather than conducting an assault. The Olivan tanks hit four T-54-55s and a BM-21 Stalin organ, putting all of these out of action, and the intensity of this fight grew. The combatants were facing off less than 200 metres away from each other. The Stalin organ went up like a fireworks display, the rockets firing in all directions, and the Ulfans had to quickly withdraw to avoid being hit. By now, Battle Group Charlie had arrived at the point where they were supposed to have begun their morning's assault a few hours before, one of the cleared areas. They were way behind schedule. Three Fapla troops were then spotted in a trench and taken prisoner. They were quaking, believing the South Africans were going to kill them. Instead, they were sent to the rear in a rattle for questioning. Alpha Battle Group hung back to the south of the Beposhta high ground in case the brigade swung past Bravo and Charlie. The SADF had prepared well, although, as you're going to hear, and as usual in a highly mobile war, gaps would also appear. The SADF units had positioned themselves in a half-circle and the Angolans could not move north early. They were still in an area of wetland, a swampy land, that lay under their escape route. No vehicles could drive through it, said Shadakan. The only way would be to lay a temporary road of logs and brushwood first. The Russians had a great deal of experience in this sort of road-making. After all, it was what they'd done in the Second World War, facing the Germans in similar swampy conditions, particularly in Ukraine. And the South Africans were also used to building quick roads in the same manner. The corduroy road, as it was known, is an old idea, but trying to build something like this in the middle of a battle is extremely difficult. The SADF bombarded 21 Brigade from the Rattles and artillery units, and Fapler troops panicked once more, running across the Shona on foot, leaving their vehicles behind. The officers then sprinted up and down the length of this retreating company, screaming and cursing them, threatening. The men stopped, 
and then turned to fight the South Africans. 25 Brigade was still some way behind 21 Brigade, and the Russians with the forward troops prayed their reinforcements would make it through. It was mid-afternoon. Both sides were behind their respective schedules, but the SADF spotters had managed to locate the Papla infantry, trying to run across the open area once more to get to the Hubei River. The Ulivans and Rattles were called to the front and opened fire on the retreating troops with anti-personnel rounds, along with browning machine guns. Mortars were also starting to pinpoint their position when suddenly word was received that T-54-55s had outflanked the South Africans to the south. Combat Group Bravo, being held in reserve, turned to face the tanks with Rabi Hotsleaf ordering his men to try and push the Angolans into the open space south of the river. Hannes Nortmann's armoured car squadron crunched through the bush heading towards this threat and then engaged the enemy tanks less than 50 metres in front of Bravo's infantry shooting out three T-54-55s almost immediately. Hotsleaf said later that Nortman obviously still had some of his nine lives in hand because to take on a tank with a rattle is really quite something, and Hannes had done it again and again in this war. It was during this intense part of the battle on the 16th of November that writer Fred Bridgelin believes Nortman used up one of his lives. He spotted a T-54-55 tank barrel sticking out of the bush from behind a tree and realised that his own puny 20mm gun had no chance of stopping this enemy heavy metal. He radioed a nearby Rattle 90, but the crew didn't seem to understand what he was saying. Throwing caution to the wind, Nortman jumped out of his Rattle 20, ran up to the Rattle 90, hammered on the side, pointed to the T-54-55, and verbally commanded the gunner to shoot, then watched the 90mm rounds take out the Russian tank. The Angolans inside were looking the other way, which was fortunate for the SED of Armoured Car Commander. Meanwhile, Rabbi Hotsleaf, on board his Rattle 90, was having his own set of problems. The gearbox broke down, and the Rattle was stuck in a deep gully alongside a tree line, facing the open ground near the Hubei River. Fapla tanks burst through the bush between him and the burning T-54-55 that Nortman had hit. Hotsleaf then handed over control of Charlie Combat Group to Commandant Leon Marais. Moments later, Another heroic attempt at saving a wounded soldier was to play out. Corporal Paul Gladwin, who headed up Forsyth's Charlie Squadron Troop 1 and part of the 62 Mech Group, commanded a Rattle 90 call sign Tango 31 Alpha. His commander, Lieutenant Leon Stain, suffered a failed recoil on the 90mm cannon of his vehicle, so it was sent back to the rear echelon for repairs. The order was for Corporal Gladwin to take over Stain's broken rattle and drive it back behind the Tiffy crew of Sergeant Labaskachny and Private Spencer. As was the habit of rattle commanders, Gladwin took his gunner, Trooper Johan Brevet, with him, but used Stain's driver. Trooper Britz was driving the damaged vehicle and joined up with a small convoy of Sergeant Labaskachny and Private Spencer in their tow vehicle called the Withings. They were towing a damaged ambulance, or Rinkhals, and the ambulance crew, Lieutenant Davies and Lance Corporal Johan Rielinghuis, were in the Withings crew seats. Moments later, they were ambushed by a Fapla Stalin's organ that fired a full salvo of 40 rockets on the small convoy from close range. Corporal Gladwin ordered Brits to reverse, trying to get out of the kill zone, as he said to me in an email, down onto the lower ground for cover, while his gunner Brevet opened fire with a 7.62 Browning. Gladwin also fired his commander-mounted 7.62 at the multiple rocket launcher. They couldn't use the Rattles 90mm because of the failed recoil. In the chaos, Brits reversed up a tree and the wheels were lifted off the ground. As soon as the turret traversed to fire, the driver promptly evacuated the vehicle 
and left the gunner and Gladwin behind, still firing at the rocket launcher. Sergeant Labaskakni then ran across the kill zone to call the two to join him, but his tow vehicle was then hit as well, along with the ambulance. Labaskakni jumped into the rifle driver's seat and managed to move it off the tree, then sped back to the burning Rinkals and Withings, leaving Brits the driver in the bush. They pulled both wounded men out of the Withings. Lance Corporal Riedlinghuis had a serious stomach wound. Private Spencer had a head wound caused by shrapnel. Dr. Lieutenant Davies tried to keep them both stable. The small group were in big trouble, surrounded by Vapler, so they radioed squadron leader Captain Tony Steinbach, asking him to fire a flare to guide them to safety. Steinbach duly fired a red flare, but then another went up immediately afterwards in a different direction. It was a ruse by Vapler who knew what these signals meant. We panicked as we thought the comms were being monitored and we were being lulled into another ambush, said Gladwin, so I asked Captain Steinbach to fire another flare. Luckily, they discussed the possibility that the Angolans would try and use flares of their own to confuse the South Africans, and switched to a green flare. Finally, Labaskakni drove the rifle towards safety. As they headed over the next high ground, a T-54 rumbled out of the Shona, and once again Gladwin and the gunner fired the coaxial 7.62s at this tank, which appeared to work as the tank quickly reversed out of our sight as we sped full speed past where it had previously been, reported Gladwin. Lance Corporal Redlinghuis and Private Spencer were treated by medics, both still alive. However, the Lance Corporal died the next day, and Gladwin says he still conducts his own personal remembrance every year on the 17th of November for his fallen comrade. As he points out, the SADF washed the National Servicemen out of the report, not for the first time, as you've heard. For his heroism, Labaskakni was awarded the honor as crooks. It was late afternoon and this battle continued. Dozens of UNITA troops lay scattered about and 3-2's commander Fancel said they had taken a terrible number of dead and wounded. Everywhere I could see them carrying their own corpses and wounded on improvised stretchers made of wood cut from the bush. The rifles and the elephant tanks were running out of fuel and ammunition. It was that time of a battle to withdraw and refuel and rearm so the South Africans withdrew 12 kilometers east. The firing died down, and the Russian logs reported that Fapler's 25 Brigade arrived at this point at 1600 in the afternoon. They had fought through the artillery barrages aimed at them in the south and managed to break through and join up with 21 Brigade. The Rekis, who were monitoring these two brigades, reported they appeared to be settling in for the night. The Angolan 21-25 columns withdrew a short distance west, not far beyond the source of the Hube, and the troops began digging trenches. They had taken a UNITA officer prisoner and he was being held by the Russians when Fapla's soldiers ran up to Lieutenant Colonel Yuri Pavlovich Shushenko, one of the most respected and probably most professional of the Russians present. The Angolans wanted to shoot the UNITA officer out of hand. Yuri Pavlovich jumped out of his troop carrier and shouted, Get out or I will kill everybody! while waving his submachine gun at the Angolans who shrank back in horror. The other Russians had to restrain Pavlovich he was literally about to open fire on his allies. But he knew that the POW had important information about the SADF. Killing him would be counterproductive. Back to the Battle of the Hube. The SADF was licking their own wounds, so the commanders didn't think twice about carrying out repairs and being resupplied. It was dark. The tiffies had turned out and were fixing the vehicles. Elements of fire recce reported the trenches continued being dug by 2125 Brigade and HQ Intelligence and Rundu told the local commanders of Alpha, Bravo and Charlie Comic Groups that Fapla would probably move again but only in around six hours. 
they were wrong. As the combat group settled in for a bit of rest, Fapla began to move under cover of darkness. The Angolans were well practiced at manoeuvring columns around at night. 21 and 25 brigades moved quickly, rounded the source of the Hubei River, then turned westwards, heading towards the Chambinga Bridge, in a charge that would soon become known as the Chambinga Gallop. By dawn they were at the bridge, about 14 kilometers west of the source of the Hubei, and began to dig into the high ground between the source of the Chambinga River and the Hubei itself. They couldn't all cross, it would be a slow affair, and this would provide the South Africans with an opportunity to cause mayhem. The Angolans created a defensive screen for Fapla's 16 Brigade and its tactical armoured group to retreat across the bridge. Angolan commander of the 21st Brigade, Captain Ngoleka, and Russia's Lieutenant Colonel Artyomenko had a quick discussion with the Russians referring to the Angolan captain as balanced and clear-headed as he considered his next moves. It was decided to put six ZU-23 anti-aircraft guns in a line on the high ground which would welcome the SADF with their armour-piercing rounds. The 23mm shell could easily penetrate the Rattle 90s armour. Back at SADF HQ, Ops Commander Colonel Dion Ferreira ordered Mike Muller's Combat Group Alpha forward, supported by four size tanks and two companies of 3-2 Battalion detached from Charlie Combat Group. They caught up with the Angolans two hours before nightfall on the 17th of November, only three kilometres from Chambinga Bridge. SADF HQ believed that the Angolans would break and panic. Many did with Russian logs reporting that 21 Brigade in particular was stuck in the swampy ground just before the bridge near the river crossing. They had no idea what to do and were a crazed horde, as one Russian put it, wanting only to stay alive and throw away everything they could get rid of. The Brigade's artillery on the hills, including the ZU-23s, did not run. They began firing back on Muller's combat group as it approached, and Fopler's 59th Brigade was also going to pose the SADF some problems. Lieutenant Kurs Breitenbach was the SADF forward artillery observer at the strategic bridge and he became known as the murderer of the Chambinga after what happened next. He was extremely accurate in his distance measurements and timing, bringing down constant G5 shells, rockets and 120mm mortars on the Angolans trying to cross the bridge. By the time Operation Modular was over, Lieutenant Kurs Breitenbach had watched the bridge for five weeks and knew every shrub and over the days, as vehicles from 59, 21, 25, 66 and 16 brigades approached over the bogs, he saw they were boxed into a forested area around 6 square kilometres in size, south of the swamplands. They prepped for the final crossing here, then would drive headlong towards the bridge, praying that the mirages left them alone and the tanks and artillery were off target. It was at 1700, on the 17th of November, that the Russian armoured car pulled away from the forested protection towards the bridge. They moved into the night without closing their eyes, as Igor Shadarkin says, no stars or moon visible, and their nerves were on edge. One of the command vehicles bogged down. It took hours to pull it out. Moments later, another stalled, and the G5 shells began to land amongst the column. The Angolans dropped into defensive positions. The Russians wanted to keep moving. They forced Fapler to restart their vehicles, and eventually they reached the river bank the next morning at 4 a.m. Then they stopped because a truck had overturned on the bridge and was now blocking all traffic. The bridge was a TMM mobile sort laid across the main stream with a corduroy road of logs on both sides so that the vehicles didn't get stuck. This provided a perfect spot to target the slow-moving trucks, the tanks and the armoured cars. 
United troops had been protecting Lieutenant Gwis Breitenbach for weeks, and a close bond formed between the soldiers and the South African spotter. He said that they nicknamed the G5 the Kafundanga, after Unita's former chief of staff, Samuel Kafundanga Chingunji, who was murdered by the Portuguese during the Civil War. The 127mm Valkyrie rockets were called the Chindungu, or the red pepper that bites. Two companies of up to 16 Brigade marched towards the bridge in front of Breitenbach. He ordered G5 fragmentation rounds, which burst on the soldiers, followed by a ripple of MRL rockets. Dozens of FAPLA troops died in that single bombardment. The salvos were designed to stop vehicles on the bridge or either side and they had already hit a truck forcing the other vehicles on the south to head for cover. Combat Group Alpha was approaching. The Olifants were firing. Each time a 105mm shell ploughed into the bush ahead, it parted the bush like the Red Sea, said 3-2 battalions from sale. The South Africans tried to move forward quickly but it really was a series of stop-starts as United troops called to warn them of mega attacks, then of minefields. So the South Africans finally made it onto the high ground at night on the 17th, but it was dominated by the 23mm anti-aircraft guns. There another battle developed. It was difficult to push past these guns, and Fapler's 59th Brigade had also decided to stand and fight. Later, 3-2's from Sale would complain to officers that they'd let 21 and 25 Brigade escape once more, but you can understand why. Thursday, the 17th of November, was a red-letter day in Angola's 59th Brigade history. As the other troops began to panic, the 59th held firm and actually moved most of the valuable equipment north of the Chambinga Bridge to safety while the SADF's combat group Alpha hesitated. The accurate fire of the 23mm anti-aircraft guns on the hill were also causing the SADF units to pause. Fonsail accused the SADF of not going for it. But the reality was, the South Africans were spent. What looked from one side like a rout was a lot more confused than that. Some FAPLA companies continued to fight alongside the Russians. It's clear from the telegrams and the troop reports that not all FAPLA fled, despite the SADF artillery causing carnage. Yes, the South Africans were exhausted, and the Ulifons, Rattles and other heavy weapons were beginning to break down. The Tiffies hardly slept on the night of the 17th, and still they could not keep everything moving. 3-2 Battalion's morale was good, and parts of Forsai was also up for the scrap. But the Angolan army was not backing down, and 3-2 and a couple of companies of Forsai were not going to beat Fapla by themselves, despite what Van Zale believed. There was another political reason why the SEDF top brass stopped the direct assault on the bridge at that moment. The number of casualties would have climbed alarmingly, and that was something Pretoria was just not willing to countenance. A critical tactical decision had to be made on the 17th through to the 19th of November. Many of the South African troops fighting in southern Angola were national servicemen, and their two-year stints were coming to an end in mid-December. Very soon, they'd have to be rotated out, to be replaced by rookies who'd need a few months acclimatization, let alone basic training. A new planned offensive was in the works, a deliberate attack on the Quito River bridgehead, P.W. Boerter and his politicians had agreed, but now it was all about timing. Should they press on immediately and take the chance of running into the problems of fighting in the last few days before the national servicemen left for Christmas, or wait until the new year? As you'll hear next episode, they decided to stand down, which was a decision that drove the experienced veterans of this war to exasperation. 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.